When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. This week in 1963, Martin Luther King and other civil rights activists led the March on Washington for Jobs and freedom. It was a call for civil economic rights, a call to end racism in the United States of America. We've commissioned several shows on history, both TV and audio, uh, to mark this anniversary and to also uh, mark the renewed calls for those civil and political rights following the death of George Floyd and others in the United States. We've got a documentary going up on history here, on the history of policing in the US. And this podcast is an interview with the excellent Christopher Wilson. He's a director at the National Museum of American History. He's a director of Experience Design African American History Programme. And this is one of the live history hits that we do on YouTube, on Timeline. Check them out. If you do want to go and watch that policing documentary on History Hit TV, uh, please head over there. Uh, use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, and you get a month for free and you get the second month just one pound, euro, or dollar. So it's a pretty sweet deal. So head over and do that. In the meantime, everybody, enjoy the excellent Christopher Wilson. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dan. It's wonderful to be here today. Thank you for having me on. Let's start with this discussion about the, the civil rights movement of the 1960s by giving a, like a very brief history if you may, of what happened really between that moment when slaves are freed, all the, even all the way down in Galveston, um, up until the 1960s, because Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King didn't suddenly invent this, this, this struggle for emancipation. It, it, had been, it had been a battle fiercely contested. That's a really good point. Um, historians are starting to talk about the civil rights movement as more of a long civil rights movement, um, as opposed to, we generally think of that Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King uh, initiation of the 1950s and 60s uh, movement and think of it as a Montgomery to Memphis story, the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 to King's assassination in, in Memphis in 1968 or even earlier to the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And we think of it as that, that 10 year period, but that black freedom struggle really began as long at the beginning of the lack of freedom. Uh, so during, uh, so there were black and white abolitionists working for uh, formal emancipation and abolition during the period of slavery. Uh, also abolitionists in the sense of people like Frederick Douglass before he became an orator freeing themselves. As I, as I mentioned, uh, African-Americans were trying to 
uh, end slavery, either personally or collectively during its period. And then that abolition movement really became uh, a, a, a freedom and civil rights movement uh, in the late 19th, in the, the 19th century through the Re reconstruction period and into the late 19th century. What the case, the Supreme Court case that uh, was, uh, that eventually was overturned by the Brown versus Board of Education, uh, Supreme Court case that ended desegregation uh, in the in, in public schools in the United States in 1954, the Supreme Court case that they were working to overturn was the Plessy versus Ferguson case in the 1890s, and that case was initiated by Homer Plessy uh, doing a very similar act as Rosa Parks eventually did, uh, refusing to give up a seat and test uh, on a streetcar and testing uh, laws uh, that enforced public, uh, enforced segregation in public, uh, public uh, uh, proceedings. So that was really uh, a movement that had begun at that point, you know, uh, after the end of, after emancipation, people started testing, well, what will, will freedom really mean? And started pushing uh, the boundaries of that definition. And is that where the NAACP come in and, and, and are, are testing out through the courts and, and pushing on the, pushing on the, uh, pushing on some of those deeply restrictive and, and recidivist practices? Exactly. So people like W.E.B. Du Bois um, working to found the NAACP in that period are working on several fronts. And so that and that's, you know, I think one of the things that uh, we have to understand about even the 1950s and 60s civil rights movement, that people were working on many different fronts at the same time. There was not one uh, monolithic uh, type of movement in a particular time and then it switched to another tactic a few years later, but many people were trying uh, many different tactics all at once. Uh, the NAACP certainly began that legal work at the in the early part of the 20th century, uh, but at the same time, people like W. B. Du Bois were working with more or less publicity. Things like the the New Negro movement and the Harlem Renaissance, uh, working to change the way African Americans are viewed. If he felt we could. Uh, have great achievement in art and literature and uh, other expressions, um, even sports, the Harlem uh, Wrens basketball team and the Harlem Globetrotters and so forth starting at that time. If we could be use those avenues to be seen as human, then, uh, then things would change and things would be better. So there were all of those tactics were being used really at the same time. But yes, the NAACP began in earnest a, an, a, a process to test uh, the laws, particularly around school segregation. So, so I want to talk more about the sort of transition, if you like, from testing those laws to taking direct action. After we actually talk more about those laws, the so-called Jim Crow laws, we've got, a, we've got a, um, a clip from a timeline documentary here, fascinating documentary, explaining just what those laws were. Northern troops withdrew from the South. The states enacted Jim Crow laws to keep blacks in their place. These laws made sure that blacks and whites did not have to come into close public contact. Facilities such as public bathrooms, water fountains, seating areas on buses, restaurants, hotels, hospitals, and schools. Every public necessity and service in the South was segregated 
and seemingly designed to make blacks feel inferior. It was common to see signs that read for colored or white use only. These laws were considered fair and constitutional for many years. However, the reality of segregation was far from fair. It was profoundly destructive emotionally and psychologically. So there you can see uh, some, just visually, the impact of some of those laws, the segregation that was enforced on communities across those southern states. Um, uh, Christopher Wilson, uh, back with you, the uh, historian of uh, civil rights and and, uh, and uh, curator at the Smithsonian. Um, can you tell me uh, what was the what was the impact of, of these of these laws on the lives of African Americans in in those states? They were infuriating and debilitating, um, and and oftentimes, sometimes they were laws. Sometimes there were there were laws. Sometimes there were customs. Uh, but all of them were really intended not only to separate people and to, and to do what they sort of functionally did and keep people from using drinking fountains. And we had an exhibition at the Smithsonian uh, about the 50th anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education case. And we uh, had a, the opening of the exhibition was a listing of many of those laws and they went all the way to the ridiculous of blacks and whites couldn't play checkers and so forth. But in addition to uh, just the fact of the law, there's the there's the impact and the way that they were they were meted out. Uh, for instance, the in Montgomery, Alabama, in the Rosa Parks case and the Montgomery bus boycott situation there, the laws were not only just to separate people, but to just enforce an ideal of white supremacy. So in Montgomery, not only could, and it's generally well known that blacks couldn't sit in the front of the bus and had to sit in their own section, but it was really more uh, worse than that. Blacks had to pay at the front of the bus, get off and go to the back entrance of the bus because not only couldn't they sit with white people in the front, they couldn't walk past them after they'd paid their fare. Uh, when they, there was, because more black people rode the bus than white people, there was a section in the middle uh, that was a varying section. Um, and uh, that section was, blacks could sit there until there were enough whites to fill up the white section and need to move back and take another row, which is what happened when Rosa Parks was arrested. And uh, so um, that, those sort of things like the, in fact, at the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott, folks were really, Coretta Scott King says this, that they were really initially working only for a more humane system of desegregation, of segregation, uh, and not really because they didn't feel like there was any chance to get rid of segregation entirely. They thought, let's at least make it more humane. Um, it's funny you talking about the, the pettiness and the, the, the detail of these laws. And it makes me think that, uh, I, I always think you know, racist people have made these laws, but these laws also made people racist. I mean, of course, how would, if you were in that system, that institution, you would look upon the other uh, as as something well as a, as a, as a as, with with huge difference, wouldn't you? Well, exactly. Uh, the uh, many of the folks that I have spoken to uh, who have been a major part of the civil rights movement, uh, folks like the Greensboro Four who began the sit-in at the Greensboro, uh, North Carolina Woolworths lunch counter, said those laws and the entire atmosphere made them feel not only angry, but suicidal by the time they were children, but 
uh, Frank McCain said when he was 12 or 13 years old, he felt suicidal uh, because of all of this weight that was coming down on him by everything around him that told him he was less than everyone else and reinforced that constantly. Um, Lord, you mentioned there, you, one of the remarkable things about your career is you've interviewed this, a huge swath of, of these uh, activists, Rosa Parks, uh, Congressman John Lewis, Diane Nash. Um, that, that is, well, just tr try and, if you can, um, give, give us a summary. Some of the, let's start with Rosa Parks, uh, internationally famous. My kids here in the UK study her in school. Well, what was that like meeting her and hearing her story? So it was really interesting. Uh, so I met Rosa Parks when I was working again at Henry Ford Museum. Uh, later in uh, the early 2000s, well, we collected the bus uh, on which Rosa Parks was riding when she got elected or got arrested. Um, interestingly, also uh, two of my Smithsonian colleagues who were really involved in uh, collecting that bus were also with me at, at Henry Ford Museum uh, uh, work doing that work then, Bill Pretzer, who's now at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and Malcolm Collum, who is the chief conservator at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. So uh, we were working on collecting that bus, but well before that, uh, by the 2000s, everybody sort of, uh, there were many people who were uh, remembering and honoring Mrs. Parks. In the early 1990s, I was director of a program uh, looking at the history of African Americans and slavery in Georgia, just outside Savannah, Georgia, and, uh, and also running a, uh, an exhibit that was a working farm of, African, of an African American landowning family uh, in that same area in the early 20th century. And Rosa Parks wanted to visit the museum. Um, you know, I'm a 21, 22 year old kid uh, working there at that point. And, uh, and this sort of says, talks about kind of how we viewed um, as a society, Rosa Parks at that time, she was just, you know, a lady working in Congressman uh, John Conyers office in Detroit. Um, and, uh, uh, and it wasn't, it was thought she's a special visitor, but not to the point that uh, they should have someone more important than a 21 year old kid uh, to take her around. So I got the benefit of that and was able to spend several hours with Mrs. Parks driving her around, around in a 1931 Ford Model A station wagon and taking her to see these things, but uh, see, this, see this exhibit. And as we spoke, uh, two amazing things happened. First, as I said, not too many people, you know, it was really just us going around, but children, there were, it was a day when many school children were visiting the museum. And after, as I went from building to building, Henry Ford Museum also has, includes an outdoor space called Greenfield Village, and that has uh, many houses, uh, historic homes, and so forth. And as we went from place to place, it became a de facto parade of kids following the car because that uh, that you know face of Mrs. Parks is in so many text, textbooks, and, and they knew her story and wanted to get her autograph. But in addition, the biggest thing that I took away from it was she did not at all seem like the demure Mother Rosa uh, that we learn about in school. She in 1992, I think it was, was still angry. She looked around at, she, when I asked her to talk about what 1955, 1956 were like, um, she was angry about that. When I asked her to talk about what 1991, 1992 was like, um, and uh, uh, she was just as angry about that and really a fiery person. Um, and uh, and you know, I'll, never, I'll never forget that. 
Um, and what about uh, Congressman John Lewis, who, who was terribly injured as well during the struggle? I mean, is, is, is he, he must have a remarkable story. Congressman Lewis, yes, has has first of all been a huge friend of the Smithsonian and 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 the, many of the programs that I've done. We've uh, brought him in to do uh, programs related to the Greensboro lunch counter, to our uh, freedom rides uh, and freedom summer uh, programming that we did uh, in the last few years. And uh, his um, his devotion. He's one of those people who. Uh, in the civil rights movement during the nonviolent, the rise of the nonviolent direct action campaign, uh, there were some folks, many folks, who felt like that idea of nonviolent direct action that Gandhi, uh, that they learned from Gandhi, that they learned from people in the United States, like Reverend Jim Lawson, uh, felt like it was a it was a powerful tactic. It was certainly a tactic that was possible when they felt like self-defense was not a possible tactic because there was so much power on the other side. But not everybody took it to heart as a way of life. And Congressman Lewis has been um, one of the icons of that. Uh, he, despite being injured in numerous uh in, in in numerous activities in the summit of montgomery march uh in the freedom rides uh he was beaten over and over again uh fighting for justice he not only uh didn't fight back but has always taken that love into his heart um and uh taken that to the united states congress and i think that that is just one of the most remarkable things about him um, Garpol51, thank you very much for your donation. All donations, everybody, go to the COVID International Relief Fund. So thank you very much for your generosity there. Um, let's talk about nonviolence. You, you've mentioned it there. When, when you've interviewed these people, how, how, how unusual was it? How hard was it? Was this a revolutionary idea, do you think, that was being embraced? It was certainly a revolutionary idea. Uh, just recently, I've, I've interviewed several times, and, and most recently in, in January, uh, Reverend uh, James Lawson. Uh, Reverend Lawson was uh, working in Ohio uh, and uh, had taken trips around the world and began studying Gandhi uh, as well as other uh, freedom movements all around the world, but was really taken by the, the teachings of Gandhi and began teaching that at Oberlin in Ohio. Martin Luther King eventually met him and said, we don't have anybody like you in the South. Uh, Martin Luther King was coming was coming to understand in a really full way the power of nonviolence and the commitment that it took to to practice it in the way that Gandhi uh, in in the really traditional the way that Gandhi had, had developed it, and asked uh, Lewis uh, asked Lawson to come uh, to the South, and he ended up going to Vanderbilt University in, in Nashville, and um, and st were studying divinity. In 1958, 1959, primarily, he began a really a study group um, where he called a number of uh, students together to start learning and learning and studying those practices with a view toward nonviolent direct action. That study group was one of the most amazing college study groups you can imagine. Uh, it included John Lewis, uh, it included Diane Nash, um, it included uh, James Bevel, it included the, 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 the leaders, the people who became the leaders of not only the civil rights movement, but people who then inspired the, the peace movement later and many of the tactics uh, that we see 
arise in uh, in and debates around which that we see arise in the 1950s and 60s and 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 into the into the present. So, but folks like uh, Diane Nash have told me she immediately was not taken with the idea of nonviolence. Didn't necessarily think it would work. Um, of course, we're also talking about a generation just uh, removed from World War II, uh, the who had uh, and and hundreds of thousands, you know, blacks uh, were involved in the war effort. People like my father, who said uh, nonviolence just never, you know, never. I, I never understood the idea of I won't hit back if you hit me, and so a lot of people had to be convinced that this was a tactic that would work and, and even more difficult was convincing people that taking it into your heart as Congressman Lewis has or Diane Nash uh, was necessary, that it couldn't just be a tactic, it needed to be um, a way of life in order to be uh, successful, which is what Gandhi would have argued. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, but but it, it's interesting to use the word tactic because there is, you know, it's it, it's it's not just a lifestyle. There, there was it was designed very cleverly to provoke confrontation that they would then, uh, which would then allow the world to see the who were actually the aggressors in in this situation. I mean, can you talk talk me through what nonviolence meant in terms of the the the, the, the uh, you know the, the tactics, as you say, that they would then go and and uh, use on the streets or dining in, in uh, Woolworth County or whatever it is. Certainly. Well, one of the things that uh, that uh, veterans of the movement say quite often is that the first thing that nonviolence did was change the person practicing it. Um, and uh, it, for many of the moments of the civil rights movement, uh, the nonviolent direct action didn't 
directly result in in changes and didn't uh, were not the only thing that resulted or that would result in, in a change. For instance, Montgomery bus boycott. Ultimately, what ended it was a court decision um, argued by attorney Fred Bray, still alive, um, and that uh, that really expanded the idea of separate is not equal that separate can never be equal that the Supreme Court had said about public education in 1954 and expanded that into a broader, uh, a broader realm in terms of public transportation. Um, but what happened in Montgomery was people, again, who had been a community who had, been un who had undergone uh, oppression even mental oppression, as we've talked about with the, uh, the type, the, the, the impact of the segregation laws, it ended up proving to the Montgomery community that they had power. Um, and uh, so that was one of, the one of the effects of nonviolence. In addition, it, it definitely disarmed uh, uh, the opponents. Uh, and when uh, it, it was a really radical idea to say we are going to put our bodies on the line to force a change and you can kill us. This is one of the things that Diane Nash said to me that she eventually understood and had to come to this realization of ourselves that you had to be willing to say, well, you can kill us, but now you can never segregate us again because we will not be segregated. We are taking that power and we may not be taking all of the power because again, you can, you can incarcerate us, you can go all the way up to uh, putting us to death, but you cannot enslave us in the same way that you did before. And so that, and, and you know, that power goes both ways, I think. You know, power uh, empowers the people saying it, but it also uh, deflects and, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and makes impotent the people on the other side. Uh, and then lastly, I think there, the nonviolence really allowed uh, as I think we are seeing today with some of the protests, a lot laid bare the the violence and the oppression that people were seeing uh, were were facing, and that that became so clear because it was covered in in the news media and so forth. And uh, and so the, when they courted arrest, when they courted violence, and when that violence then happened, many people came around saying, "Well, I can see on television." this is just not fair or right. Well, we're gonna watch another little clip now. Um, we're gonna see Martin Luther King himself. He's, uh, he's called to protest following Rosa Parks' arrest on, on, uh, on that bus as he's watching. But first of all, I wanna say hello to Abdul Karim Abubakar, who is watching from Somalia, which I think is our first, uh, the first time I've seen someone watching from Somalia. So thank you very much. I hope you're enjoying this stream, but let's take a look at this documentary from Timeline now. A number of years, the Negro passengers on the city bus lines of Montgomery have been humiliated, intimidated, and faced threats on this bus line. Just the other day, one of the fine citizens of our community, Mrs. Rosa Parks, was arrested because she refused to give up her seat for a white passenger. Mrs. Rosa Parks was arrested taken down to jail, taken from the bus, just because she refused to give up her seat. At present, we are in the midst of a protest, the Negro citizens of Montgomery, representing some 44% uh, of the population. 
90% at least of the regular Negro bus passengers are staying off the buses, and we plan to continue until something is done. So there, uh, Christopher Wilson, historian uh, and uh, Smithsonian uh, Museum curator. Uh, what's, we, we've just seen Martin Luther King. He is such a towering figure. Uh, how, how important is he within this movement? And, and, and does, he, does he overshadow some of the other activists that you've been talking about and that, that you've met and interviewed? You know, I think the answer is yes to both questions. I mean, he certainly is a towering figure and the movement wouldn't have been the same without him. Um, his oratory, his, uh, his manner of bringing people together and, and coalescing around the cause, his political activism uh, certainly is, was, was hugely significant um, about in it. Um, he certainly also does overshadow the un full understanding of the movement as a people's movement. Uh, it's, uh, there have been uh, other individuals in American history, Frederick Douglass and so forth in, in, uh, in the African-American freedom struggle who have had similar impact. Um, and, uh, but one of the things that was different really about 1950s and 60s was how many people were involved and how much, how strong it became as a people's movement. And, and I, I don't think that that, I, I, what I don't think we should do is at all uh, diminish Martin Luther King's legacy and memory uh, because in fact, I don't think that we as a country and as a society understand him fully, uh, understand his, his greatness as fully as we should. Uh, we certainly don't, we certainly don't understand him as a person who was as radical as he was. Uh, we think of his statements uh, like uh, the, the dream speech, for instance, uh, during the March on Washington in 1963. And we remember it as a, many times as a call for a colorblind society and, and uh, people should not be, should be judged by the content of the character of their character and not the color of their skin. But we also have to remember that that speech was about ultimately a sort of reparations. That speech, in that speech, he said the United States had passed a bad check um, to, uh, to its citizens of color and uh, we were coming to collect that check. Um, and that check was, uh, had been returned for non-sufficient funds and so forth. And you know, the March on Washington was the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. And that's what one of the things he was really talking about. So I don't think we remember him in a fully in a full way, but in in another way, we 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 remember the movement as too much related to him, as too much of Martin Luther King's movement, and and I think that that is a bit troubling in the sense that uh, people and you hear, I hear this many times from civil rights movement leaders and, and activists from the time who say if you think of it as a movement led by an influential leader like Martin Luther King, a one of a kind leader like Martin Luther King, people like Rosa Parks and so forth, you think, well, I wish we had a person like that now. And um, I wish we had a, a leader who could lead us out of this of these problems that we're in today. But if you think of it as ordinary people doing it, then you think, what can I do? And so I think that it's we we have we have that uh, that issue of of public memory sort of in both directions. 
Uh, thanks a lot. Now we need to let's move on from Dr. King because there was also there was a debate uh, famously between you know represented on one side by Malcolm X. It, it was um, it wasn't just a it wasn't just a given that there would the whole African American community embraced uh, nonviolence. There was also there were voices advocating a more uh, sort of stringent uh, self defense, weren't there? Certainly. Uh one really strong voice, uh, and you know, we, when we're talking even about that, uh, that sort of Montgomery to, uh, to uh, Memphis or Montgomery to Selma idea of the civil rights movement. And then we often think that that, that period was really about the South and really about segregation and really about, and, and the tactic used was nonviolent direct action and sermons and voter to registration drives and, and so forth. And then the way we publicly remember it is you have more of the Malcolm X, uh, Black Power, uh, Black Panther Party, uh, self-defense model leading us to the violent clashes that we saw in 1967 in Detroit in 1968 um, after King's assassination. But, and, and we think of it as this bifurcated story um, with, diff with tactics changing uh, with the period, but, those ideas were all alive at the same time. In 1958, there was a case uh, called the, known as the Kissing Case in Monroe, North Carolina. Uh, two black children, uh, James Thompson and David Simpson, were uh, accused of, well, kissed of a white girl um, of the same age. These were kids under 10 years old. Um, they were all playing together I've been seeing a, a, a little viral video going around of two of a black and white toddler playing together uh, today and that being used in different political ways um, right now. Well, kids played together you know, during this period of segregation sometimes too. And at this point, someone kissed someone else. And when the white kids' parents found out about it, white girls' parents found out about it, they first set out to kill the children, the black children themselves, and then the police were involved. The kids were taken without really legal representation, taken without being able to see their parents and put in jail, eventually sentenced to reform school. Again, they're between seven and nine years old. They were sentenced to reform school until the age of 21 for kissing a girl on, actually, in fact, I think actually she kissed them. So, 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 uh, so you know, there was no crime, but yet they were sentenced to reform school till age 21. Um, a man named Robert F. Williams really got involved and became a, more or less a publicity arm, trying to get publicity in, in Europe uh, to really push, uh, to get the, the details of this case out. And, uh, and eventually they were freed after a number of months in, in jail. Robert Williams uh, moved on from that uh, activity to a, a, another similar case where a white uh, man uh, raped or attempted to rape a black woman also in Monroe and was then acquitted from, of doing that. It's happened in broad daylight. There was no doubt about it. He was acquitted, but Williams came away from both of those cases deciding that, uh, that nonviolence was not the way to go, that if the if the government and represented by the police, by the courts, by every governmental agency was going to oppress people in this way and use violence and intimidation in that way, the only way that he felt uh, things could get better was 
to meet violence with violence. So he uh, applied for membership to uh, the National Rifle Association to create a, a rifle club um, and began what he called the Black Guard in, uh, in, in Monroe um, and uh, decided to uh, protect the Black community with self-defense. Um, he eventually was forced out of the country. He trumped up uh, kidnapping charges were levied against him and he fled to Cuba and then later to uh, China. Um, and while in exile, he wrote the book in 1962, Negroes with Guns, which uh, I was able to know very well and interview uh, his partner uh, and, and widow, um, uh, Mabel Williams. Uh, and we did a program with her on uh, Negroes with Guns at the Smithsonian in 2005 and, uh, and, and talked about her story of uh, of uh, self-defense and and what she then did in in exile, and uh, and and it's just really amazing that that uh, idea and those those uh, those those thoughts were happening at the same time as nonviolent direct action is being developed as well. And so there is this debate about which way to move forward, and so it's and it's, and it's often thought of as sort of Malcolm X versus people like Bayard Rustin, but it wasn't just them. It was many people talking about what is the right path forward. Now, and, and it also feels like those debates continue. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at the Black Lives Matter movement now, when you're looking at the protests on the streets of the US and other countries around the world, what, what, what are the bits of history that, that, that are being flagged up in your head or that you think we need to know, that you think people on the streets need to know and, and people in governments need to know? Well, one of the things that is uh, that I'm noticing that is a really important aspect of what is happening today is the diversity that we're seeing. Uh, there was diversity in the civil rights movement. There were uh, uh, many white um, activists who were drawn to come to the South and become uh, become active in things like Freedom Summer and even before that in Freedom Rides. Uh, I was able to interview a really remarkable man, Jim Zwerg, um, who is uh, uh, was beaten in during one of the, the during the Freedom Rides uh, in 1961. Uh, he was part of the second sort of group of folks to get this Freedom Rides going. Again, Freedom. The Freedom Rides really was started by the organization, the Congress of Racial Equality, and uh, it and that that initial moment, uh, that initial part of that movement, uh, took buses. Uh, they boarded buses, interstate buses, uh, where there was already there had already been rulings to say that uh, segregation in interstate transit was unconstitutional. But states in the South were not were still enforcing unconstitutional laws. And so they decided to test this and try to, as we mentioned before, not only court sort of potential violence, but also force the federal government to uh, into a, a situation where it either had to enforce its own laws or let lawlessness uh, exist in the South. And uh, that happened, the initial Freedom Rides organizers probably did not expect the level of violence that they uh, that they saw in Alabama and those buses were attacked and firebombed and 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 so forth and then really led by Diane Nash the student nonviolent coordinating committee decided 
well, we can't let violence overcome nonviolence. Even though this isn't our fight, we didn't start this, we didn't start the Freedom Rides, we aren't at all involved. When she saw it on television, they decided we have to continue the Freedom Rides. And so they did. And people like Jim's word uh, came down and decided to not only join that movement, but you know, go uh, attend as a white person, attend uh, a historically black college. So we saw uh, white uh, activists come into the movement, but not really, I don't think in the numbers that we're seeing, but one of the, today, and one of the things that I think that has really affected, that really affected people in, the, in, in this time, someone again like Jim Zwerd or Joan Mulholland who lives here uh, in the DC area and, uh, and uh, she's, a, she's a person who was in a really famous photograph of a sit-in in, in uh, Mississippi where they were violently attacked. Uh, those folks um, definitely understood the violence and the oppression against them, against African-Americans in a really personal way because they saw it themselves. I think one of the things that is happening that is, that is different today is that many people are out in the streets and they're seeing police brutality firsthand. They're experiencing it, unfortunately, sometimes firsthand, but they're also seeing it when they're in protests and through social media. My own son has, uh, you know, came to me I wasn't, I, I thought he was a bit more sheltered from some of this, but on his iPod, apparently he had seen uh, some of the protests and came to me and said, how can someone, how can a police officer just run someone over who's just standing there with their, you know, a mounted police officer run someone over with their horse or their car and so forth. And so I think that uh, more and more people across the racial racial divides across the political divides are seeing some of the issues firsthand and feeling some of those issues firsthand in the same way that uh, that uh, Jim's work and Joan Mulholland had done in the 60s, but there's just so many more uh, experiencing that today. Well, uh, Chris, I, I could talk about this all day, but I'm going to let you go. So, so Christopher Wilson, thank you for joining us and, and Director of Experience Design at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. I can't wait to get to that museum as soon as this lockdown ends, buddy. But um, thank you very much for coming on. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.